Amen. It seems hard to believe, but Toy Story came out 21 years ago. 1995. Seems like just yesterday we first watched that movie that chronicles the the tale of a group of toys in, in Andy's bedroom. And if you consider that movie, everything's going fine, hunky-dory, until a new space toy shows up. And he emerges from his box, and he's convinced that he's a real-life spaceman. And of course, Woody becomes jealous of this new toy. And so in his insecurity, he, he acts like a bully. And then, of course, uh, Buzz, the spaceman, in his pursuit of a false reality, he ends up wanting to run away and become go back to his space planet. And it's only after both of them come to realize that they are Andes. That Buzz accepts what he is, a toy. And that Woody accepts what he is, a beloved toy. That they are able to reconcile and they're able to make their grand escape from the mean kid's house back to Andy. In short, it's a living parable that plays out how we live and how we act in light of what we believe to be true about whose we are. You will never, ever, ever have peace in your heart. You will never, ever, ever rightly understand who you are until you understand that you are His. You must first understand this most basic, most elementary principle. You, in Christ, are His. And if you don't grasp that, the whole course of your life will be thrown off. You must understand that just like Buzz, just like Woody, you have his name written on the bottom of your foot. Okay? Last week we began looking at this chapter, and we started by seeing that 3 1 through 4 verse 9 is one long section, bracketed by the words, by the concept of rejoicing in the Lord. Paul wants us in this chapter, in this section then I should say, to understand what is involved in fighting, pursuing, chasing after joy. Because joy in the Christian life doesn't just happen. We must pursue it. We must race for it. And so he begins in chapter 3, verse 1, verses 2, and verse 3 by reminding us, hey, in your pursuit of joy, do not be sidetracked, do not be distracted by legalists or legalism. It'll throw you off. 
But then now he turns his attention. He goes a little deeper. He expands upon it. And so legalism and legalists are still in the background here, but he's really sort of honing in on this concept of righteousness and how in Christ we have righteousness. In Christ we are beloved. And that truth, that we are in Christ, we are found in him, as he says in verse 8, this underscores the reality of our Christian life that separates us and sets us apart from all that the legalists would have us do. In other words, Paul wants us in these words to see that contrary to what came before with the legalists, he wants us to understand that as we pursue joy, we need to rest in true righteousness. Righteousness. That's a hefty word, isn't it? Righteousness. When you think about it, what comes to mind? When you think about a person who's righteous, what comes to mind? Chances are you think of someone who's characterized by certain behaviors, don't you? Yeah. Well, in both the Greek and the Hebrew, righteousness is a civil slash legal term. To be righteous means that you in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world, righteousness meant that you were faithfully fulfilling all of your social obligations. You were a member in good standing in the eyes of your community, and then especially in the Greek context where they were more legal-minded, you were a member in good standing of the community, especially in eyes of the court, because a society's values and norms are expressed, ideally, in their laws, right? So to be righteous in that ancient context meant you were viewed as doing what you're supposed to do. And you were therefore accepted as a member in good standing. Now in terms of God, to be declared righteous means that we are fulfilling our obligations. In in theological terms, righteousness refers to being appraised by God as having fulfilled all of the requirements that he has set before us. Now that right there presents a problem, doesn't it? Because we all know that we have not met the requirements that he has for us. So every time in Scripture that righteousness comes up, especially as it relates to our relationship and standing with God, we are immediately presented with our greatest need and our biggest problem. You see, the fact of life is that we all will die. We all will stand before God and give an accounting. And so our greatest need is to be found in His sight as righteous. Otherwise, we are condemned. And our greatest problem is that we are not righteous. Our greatest problem is that there's no honest way that God can look at us and say, Ben, 
Jeff, Daniel, Kelly, Jeff, more Jeffs. <laughs> you have done what I've told you to do. You are righteous, at least not according to our works. So, that's our problem. And so man's religious history has been one of trying to bridge that gap, to cross that gulf, to seek righteousness so that we can stand before God with a clean conscience and be acquitted by Him to be declared righteous, which is the word justification. In English, justify and, and righteous are two different words. In the Greek and in the Hebrew, it's the same word. To be justified means to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. Man's religious history has been that. That's true all over the world. You do enough good, and you'll be accepted. Is that not the basic, the basic line that society, that religions operate on? Do enough good and you'll be accepted. It is. That's the basic line. However, however, we can never actually measure up to God's standard. Because what God wants is absolute perfection. And we, all of us, in our thoughts and our words and our deeds, we fall short. And so our only hope is that the righteousness that we need can be granted to us by God. Because on our own, you will never produce it. And so this passage is all about where do we get the righteousness that God requires. Now, one of the things that are interesting about people is in our quest to bridge this righteousness gulf, we will take whatever standards are in place and we want to prove how tough we are and so we add to them. You see it kind of even in Eve in the garden. You know, God says don't eat from the tree. So what does Eve tell the servant that God said? Oh, don't even touch it. We add to things. We make things tougher than even God makes them out to be because we want to prove how serious we are. And so, what can happen then is in our so social interactions, we apply these standards to people. And we say, hey, he's not living up. She's not living up. Or what's more, we can take our circumstances, as, and view them as barometers of God's favor with us. That's what happens. And that's not uncommon. Because what people do is they interpret God and the world through their experiences. This is why when I was in CPE, uh, it's clinical pastoral education, it's a very liberal program, they tried to tell us don't refer to God as Father. Why? Because so many people have negative experiences with their father that they will transfer those negative images onto God if you use that word. And that may sound kooky to you, and, and it is, it's wrong. That's what people do. So if people have a hard lot in life, if people have, 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 have come through a really rough background, 
They can have a hard time believing that God loves them, can't they? Conversely, if you have someone who's had a very easy life, you know, we talk about privilege nowadays, but if someone's had a very easy life, they can have a hard time believing that God isn't perhaps happy with them. I will never forget going to Northwestern University. It's, it's a Big Ten school in Evanston, Illinois. And I was doing evangelism there. And when I said that God had a wonderful plan for you, or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, the response was, why, not, why wouldn't he? I was totally unprepared for that response. Because we interpret God through our experiences. If you've had a rough background you may find it hard to believe that God actually loves you. And if you're sitting there, having had a pretty successful run of it, you may be thinking, why wouldn't God be pleased with me? And the reality is, that Paul wants us to understand, if you view God through your experiences, through your attainments, you are totally off base. You have to view God and your attainments through the lens of the gospel. And so Paul wants us to get our eyes off of this focusing on externals, focusing on circumstances, because that leads us nowhere. And instead, rest in true righteousness, which is the thing that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he makes two main points today that we're going to look at. The first is this. The righteousness we get through heredity and attainments means nothing. The righteousness you get through heredity and attainments means nothing. Look at verses 4 through 8 with me. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as Rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Okay, so people apply their theology, good, bad, or ugly. Look around the world, you see horrific examples in the Middle East of people applying their theology for evil ends. You can look to, for example, I don't know, uh, the late... Mother Teresa, as someone who applied their theology for ends that were helpful. People like Martin Luther King applied their theology of social justice and transformed our country. People apply their theology. And so, what you believe about God and how you relate to Him affects your self-perception, and it affects your perception of others around you. And so our understanding of where we stand before God, that's, that's another word for our confidence. The reason you have for thinking you stand before God in a certain way, it will affect everything. 
And so what Paul wants us to understand is that if you believe that your standing with God is in any way reflected by or indicative of your circumstance, you are mistaken. Do not look at your circumstance, your upbringing, your attainments as indicative of God's good pleasure or of God's judgment because that will be misleading to you. All right, so he writes now from the perspective of the consummate insider. People discredit those who who leave and speak bad about the organization they just left. That's what we do. We discredit them. I saw it a lot in the chaplaincy. Someone has a philosophical or theological problem with the institution of the chaplaincy. They leave the military and they speak uh, you know, they, they, they give voice to their concerns, and I've seen it. The senior people, they, they lock arms, come shoulder to shoulder, and basically with a unanimous voice, these are just the whines of someone who couldn't cut it. And they just, there's no discussion, it's just discrediting. And so what happens here is they were basically saying, of course Paul doesn't think you should fulfill the law because he's some, he's some guy who couldn't hang. And Paul says, ah, contraire, not only could I hang, I set the standard. How many churches have you met or have you been to? How many Christians have you met who came from churches where if someone left because of a legalistic tent bent in the church, they would be written off as someone who was in love with sin or they weren't in step with the Spirit or they loved iniquity they weren't righteous enough and they just discredit them paul wants you to understand i didn't leave because i was a malcontent no i set the standard of righteousness now when paul does this what he's trying to drive home the point is is if it were possible to have righteousness before god on the basis of attainments it would have been him and so since he didn't have it By implication, no one else does. And if it were possible to be right before God on the basis of how things look, it would have been him. And so since his own background and attainments were not indicative of right relationship, then neither are yours. So don't view the fact that you're having a hard time paying your bills or that your family's in turmoil as a sign that God's wrath is poured out against you. Your circumstances are not indicative. Do not rest in your cushy bank account thinking that God has blessed me. He reigns on the just and the unjust alike. Okay? Your attainments and your heredity mean nothing. So Paul here drives home the point. He uses seven descriptions. As we know, that's the number of completeness. He wants you to understand with complete transparency, I was at the top of the game. And so he starts in verse 5 and 6, and he gives four reasons of heredity to say, hey, I was an insider. And then he lists three personal attainments bringing the total number to seven. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He's an eighth dayer, literally. So 
conformity to the law at the entrance point. According to Acts, the Judaizers were telling people, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was in, like Flint, if it's possible. Of the people of Israel. Now, this, the word for people here refers to the, the ethnic, uh, uh, basically of the bloodline of Israel. I wasn't just a convert, no. I, I, my blood is Hebrew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. So not only was he associated with a, with a distinguished tribe in Israel's history, but the simple fact that he could trace his lineage in a day when most of them didn't have a clue, he was a seriously committed who could trace his genealogy. A Hebrew of Hebrews. This refers to the fact that he was raised in a Hebrew home where Hebrew customs were taught. So he was thoroughly inundated with Judaism. And then he adds to that, as to the law of Pharisee. Remember, there were two primary parties you could be a part of, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the cultural leftists, basically. They had, by and large, rejected supernaturalism. They had, by and large, said, we need to get with the times, and they were Hellenistic. They advocated participation in Greco-Roman cultural activities. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists. They were the social conservatives. They were the ones who, who interpreted the Bible literally, so to speak. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles. They were the hardliners. So in other words, Paul's saying, I took the law seriously. I wasn't some limp-wristed liberal Sadducee. No. I was, I was from the Bible belt of Israel. And I took the Bible seriously. So much so that as to my zeal, I didn't just sit by. I wasn't just a, a, an occasional pew warmer. I was so zealous for the God and religion of my fathers, that I persecuted this church. That's how seriously committed I was. And then, in the capstone, as to righteousness under the law, in other words, examine my life, pull out the, mic, pull out the, the microscope, look into my history, I was blameless as to the law. And if righteousness before God could be attained, it would have been his, would it not? He's blameless. He says it with a clean conscience. But it was nothing. He checked all the blocks. All the blocks that could have been checked. And the end result was that from the vantage point of man, he had everything going for him. Surely his was a life that pleased God. And yet in one blinding moment, as he's carrying out his court-appointed duties, he encounters the risen Lord who tells him, you are persecuting me. And his life was changed. And he understood who God was. And he understood who he was. And in light of that, everything that he had once held dear and everything that he had once taken so much pride in as, as reflecting and demonstrating and working towards relationship with God, he understood that was nothing. 
And so he uses an accounting term. It wasn't just that he said, oh, I, I, I decided that all this advantage I had was, was you know, it actually, it actually wasn't really all that important. Now, he uses a much, it was actually loss, a minus, a negative. And then he goes even further. And actually, in verse 8, calls it rubbish. Just a note about translations. We don't like to use harsh-sounding words because we're dignified Christian folk. And this verse has been kind of the scandal of the Pauline corpus because he uses a very strong word. We have a word in the English language. He uses a very strong word. A word that is basically a coarse word for excrement. That is what his works were in the sight of God. And is not that similar to what Isaiah says? In 64.6, when Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are as. And even then, we clean that up. The literal, all our righteous deeds are as filthy minstrel garments. The Bible makes no, mixes nothing about it. Everything that we think we're trusting in and hoping in is actually offensive to God because to the extent you're counting on and trusting in and looking to your circumstances and your attainments, you're actually saying, I don't need you, God, to step in at that point. And it actually makes God look less glorious. So a strong word. Now, the reason Paul says that everything I trusted in before was rubbish is because he understood that the righteousness produced by the flesh is insufficient. He was blameless, as per verse 6. He was not like Martin Luther, who was wrestling with a torn conscience of feeling guilty. He was a satisfied customer. His conscience was clean until he came to see the truth. And then all of a sudden he knew that everything, all this cleanliness that he thought he had was, was, was actually garbage. And he needed something more. Because as we talked about last week, the law only focuses on externals. What you see, what you wear, what you, what, what you hear, what you taste, what you, what you can sense. So it focuses on behaviors. And so you can be blameless in the sight of the law, like a Pharisee, and be full of wickedness. What God wants is your heart to beat with his passion. What God wants is your heart to be moved by the things that moved him. And then our behavior reflects outward. Mark chapter 10 is a, you see Jesus brilliantly revealing this to that rich young man. In Mark 10, 17 to 22, this guy comes up to Jesus and says, oh, good teacher. And Jesus, knowing the heart of man, says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, God. So right off the bat, he's, he's, he's challenging this man's notion of what goodness is. And then he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus tell him? Keep, keep, keep the commandments. Because he knows that this guy is basing his attitude and perspective on the law. 
And the rich young man says, I've done all this. And what does Jesus say? Go and sell all your possessions and come follow me and then you'll have eternal life. He responds to this man's confidence in the law with law. Showing just how much of a heart thing the law requires. The law requires, the law of God, the righteousness of God requires that your heart pursue God above all else. And this young man, while he was outwardly very moral, inwardly his heart trusted in his stuff. And he was not prepared to actually go the full length. The righteousness of the law is insufficient because it does not affect the heart. And the righteousness of Christ is so wonderful because when we are garbed in His robe, then God sees us through the lens of Christ and we are transformed from the inside out and we are made holy even as we are declared holy. Your breeding, your lot in life, your successes, they don't measure up because they don't change your heart. Do not look at your lot in life as indicative, okay? The second reason why Paul counts it as rubbish is that works of the flesh distract us from the problem and they distract us from the solution. So many people that I have encountered believe that their standing with God is based upon how they were raised. I have met so many people. And quite frankly, one of the risks we run in the Reformed world is we have this concept called covenant children. And we talk a lot about all the privileges that our kids have. And I unfortunately have seen people who think that because they were raised in a covenant family and they were baptized and, and, and that that right there means that they're good. And it's just not true. You must believe. You must pursue Christ above all else. Stop thinking that your good lot or your bad lot in life somehow reflects God's attitude towards you. You need grace. And the last reason that Paul thinks that everything he had before was rubbish is because religiosity destroys the church's unity. Churches love developing their own culture and they love developing their own standards of who's in and who's not. And if you're not, you may never be. I remember when I was in Southern Seminary, before I became Reformed, I was being interviewed by all these Baptist churches for ministry positions while I was in school. And I had done ministry for a few years just not in a Southern Baptist church. And they would ask me, point, the interview would be going fine until, they, until I handed them my resume and they looked and they saw that my ministry experiences were in evangelical free churches. And then their tone would change and they would get this suspicious look. Why do you want a pastor in a Southern Baptist church? And I would go through, hey, I think your Baptist faith and message is great. And I very quickly saw that there was a cultural thing and that they even looked at their northern Southern Baptist brothers as redheaded stepchildren. 
and they said I would be a, probably a good fit for a progressive church. Which, as you know, progressive just means liberal. And I'm like, I am more conservative than most of you people. What are you talking about? But it's not just them. Most of the Southern Baptists I know are great. That's what churches do. We have these standards that we put in place, and oh, this is what commitment to God looks like. That's just not true. And so to the extent that we're looking at the flesh, we're going to have division and disunity. Look to the Spirit. Now this passage, this isn't Paul's point, but it's just here. If there's an evangelistic passage, this is it. If you are sitting here right now and you're just satisfied with your life and you think, oh, Jesus could just be the little cherry on the top of my beautiful life, you are mistaken. Unless you bend the knee to Jesus, you are standing before Him counting on righteousness that in the words of the Holy Spirit is excrement. Jesus is not the cherry on the top of your life. Jesus will be Lord or He will not be anything. Do not trust in your righteousness. Perhaps you're on the other side of the coin and you think that your lot in life is such that you are out, you don't have hope. That is not true. If your circumstance doesn't indicate relationship with God, then that means that on both sides of the coin, turn to Jesus, flee to Him, embrace Him by faith, and claim the righteousness that can be yours and the adoption that can be yours. And the filling that can be yours. Do not trust in the works of the flesh. Because the righteousness we receive through heredity and attainments means nothing. Lastly, union with Christ by faith is everything. In the next few verses, Paul unpacks the Christian understanding of salvation with justification in verse 9 sanctification in verse 10, and glorification in verse 11. Paul wants you to understand that from start to finish. Salvation is by the work of Christ that we get through righteousness that is ours by faith in Him, and it's all summed up with the phrase united or found in Him in verse 8. Found in Him. United with Christ. Union with Christ is the secret to the Christian life. It means that when you stand before God, you're not standing on your own two legs. Jesus is the one who's wrapping you in his arms so that God sees Jesus. Union with Christ means that when you live your life, you're not just running on your own steam, that he is empowering you, that all of his perfections are applied to you so that the resurrection of the dead that was his is now given even to you. Union with Christ makes all the difference. And it's yours by faith. Many of us understand this intellectually. But we struggle practically. And so we want to tiptoe and dance around and, and, and dabble with legalism. Oh, I, I know I've got to believe, but, but I've got to make sure. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. No! You've got to go all in for grace. Dive head first. Like diving into the lake. 
you got to dive in and embrace the righteousness that he gives you. That makes him look great. And that tells the world, you know what? Nothing in my life is, 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 is going to measure up, and it's only Jesus. And the same can be true for you. Look to Jesus, and only Jesus. So, be liberated. Don't look at your life and the successes and failures of your life as reflecting your standing with God. Look to your union with Christ by faith and the righteousness that we have, the perfect, complete righteousness that we have because of Jesus. And then run that race that he set before you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Make it your aim to live and die in such a way that Jesus looks great, but never, ever, 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 ever think for a minute that you can somehow add something to to make what Jesus did better. Righteousness, complete righteousness is yours because of Jesus. Your standing with God is all because of Jesus. So rest in it. Rest in it. Breathe the free air. Your pedigree, your attainments, let it go. Breathe the free air. Just like Woody, just like Buzz, you have God's name written on your foot. You are his. So rest and enjoy life. Okay? <laughs>